have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. What we get in in our nine episodes with Luke, right? We get a really great retelling of the Parsifal legend, especially right now with Campbell's touchstone uh, for the, for the hero's journey in the West, because um, Western civilization is still different from other ones. We have this idea of, of uh, individual attainment that just doesn't really show up in the same way other places. Professor Mark Peterson teaches philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and is an expert on Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. This book is world-renowned for laying out the theory of the hero's journey, the formula for many of the mythologies and stories we know and love. Mythology are the stories that we tell to put us into relationship to the world that we think we live in. The best way to think about this is mythology is metaphorical, right? And so what that means especially is that it's not an explanation. Its job is not to explain stuff. So it's, you know, and, and one of the problems is if you go back for the last 300 years and you look at academic treatments about mythology, every, everybody tries to make myth an attempt to explain how the planets orbit, right? And, you know, the, the sun is just the solar chariot dragged through the sky by fate, you know, all that stuff. But none of that makes any sense, right? And so what's been happened, what's happened over the years is that <laughs> mythology just gets tossed out as bad science, right? Because it doesn't explain things properly. So the function of the myth is to put you into relationship with something. Now, if it puts you into relationship with something that's really true, so this is why, for instance, uh, why Star Wars, I think it rang all the bells. Even at the time, you know, the special effects were fantastic compared to anything anybody ever seen. It was, it was unbelievable. I kept thinking, even at the time, I was like, there's something that isn't that doesn't have to do with the way this thing looks that, that accounts for it. And what it was, was it put people into relationship with their own lives. It's like, because everybody's Luke. We spoke with Professor Peterson to draw out how George Lucas's mythology of Star Wars lines up with the hero's journey, and most specifically with the character of Luke Skywalker. I worked at this little tiny campus in the West Bend system out in West Bend, Wisconsin, where they used to make the toaster ovens, and population 30,000 out in the cows. And it's like, you know, this was easy sell with my students out there because every one of them thinks they were born on a desert planet where they have to, you know, we got to go milk the cows or I got to get the hell out of here. And so I, it was, it's always an easy case to make. Do you want to get off the farm? It's like, yep. It's like, well, now you understand Luke. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, she said when Biggs and Tank left. Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. With this movie, George Lucas's new myth had this yearning for something bigger ingrained in the character of Luke from the very beginning. In this scene we just heard from episode four, Luke and Uncle Owen perfectly spell out Luke's trapped feelings and launch our hero's path forward toward adventure. And what they get cook up is the grail myth. And so you see that in Luke, right? All the way through, and he hits all of the buttons there. The grail myth is the tale of King Arthur and his men searching for the holy grail that Jesus used in the Last Supper. And we'll get to this, but the story of Luke turns out to be quite similar. That's one of the paths of the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell's writings pair insights from classical and modern psychology, 
along with his understanding of mythology, and explain the universal themes of adventure and transformation that run through virtually all of the world's mythic stories and religions. So, why is this book so important to a podcast about Star Wars? Well, George Lucas cites this book as the main blueprint of the original trilogy of Star Wars movies, as well as the prequels. Here's an excerpt from Lucas's interview with Bill Moyers for The Power of Myth, titled The Mythology of Star Wars. When I did Star Wars, I consciously set about to recreate myths and the, and the classic mythological uh, motifs. Uh, and I wanted to use those motifs to deal with issues that existed today. You know, Joe used to talk about the, the, the basic um, uh, issues that, that, that create the mystery of life, of, you know, birth and death. And I like to always add, you know, your relationship with your parents. Obviously, my first mentor was my father, but then, you know, I think my last mentor probably was Joe, who, Joe Campbell, who asked a lot of the interesting questions and exposed me to a lot of things that made me very interested in uh, a lot more of the cosmic questions and the mystery. George Lucas called Campbell my Yoda. So, of course, it makes perfect sense for us to focus an episode on the hero's journey and Campbell's book that explains it so well. Oh, and that one particular moment with possibly the greatest reveal in cinematic history? Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No! No! Yeah, that's in this book, too. From Brain Kick Productions, I'm Keith Padine. And I'm John Gustatus. We want to know, why do we love Star Wars? Episode 4, An Idealistic Crusade. I think it's because we're all Luke. I think that's the reason. That might be the most concise answer to the question of why do we love Star Wars that we've heard yet. Professor Peterson is signaling that we're all the hero of our own stories. And we love Star Wars because we can see ourselves in the heroes of this saga. That could be... Luke, Han, Leia, or any number of characters spawned by the movies, books, and now television series. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell wrote, It is the purpose of the present book to uncover some of the truths disguised for us under the figures of religion and mythology by bringing together a multitude of not-too-difficult examples and letting the ancient meaning become 
apparent of itself. Campbell takes us through scores of examples of stories about heroes that have had similar trajectories and paths, and he called the singular path that we see repeated over and over again the hero's journey. He describes it as follows. The hero, therefore, is the man or woman who has been able to battle past his personal and local historical limitations to the generally valid normal human forms. The hero has died as a modern man, but as an eternal man, perfected, unspecific universal man, has been reborn. His second solemn task indeed, therefore, is to return then to us, transfigured, and teach the lesson he has learned of life itself. It's a story we've heard hundreds of times in hundreds of ways. Homer's The Odyssey, Dante's Inferno, Mozart's Don Giovanni, The Wizard of Oz, The Goonies, Iron Man, The Hunger Games, and yes, especially Star Wars. All of these stories employ what's called the monomyth. The monomyth, or hero's journey, is the common template of stories that involve a hero who goes on an adventure, is victorious in a decisive crisis, and comes home changed or transformed. While every tale may use their own take, there are common steps in this cycle. See if you can spot any Star Wars connections just from the names of the chapters that we read here. The Call to Adventure The Refusal of the Call Supernatural Aid The Crossing of the First Threshold The Belly of the Whale The Road of Trials The Meeting with the Goddess The Woman as Temptress Atonement with the Father Apotheosis The Ultimate Boon And lastly, The Return All right, that last one was pretty on the nose there, but let's have some fun and jump into A New Hope as we see how this starts to line up. The first step on the journey is referred to as the call to adventure. Here's Professor Peterson. So, begin call to adventure. Of course, we find find Luke, an angry young man who's, who's bored to death living in his little backwater desert planet, as are all of us. And of course, you have a call to adventure and, you know, sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't come. And you know, people who have just spent their lives spinning their wheels, he might have refused, but it it shows up anyway. And what happens next, of course, in the hero's journey is you get supernatural aid. And by the way, this turns out to be true in real life. Campbell talks about this, but I, I found it to be like weirdly the case that once you get on the path, you get help and doors open that you didn't expect to open. And in Luke's case, of course, Obi-Wan shows up, right? Close your eyes and you can see the scene. The vastness of the Tatooine desert and Luke zooming through the cavern in his land speeder chasing after R2-D2. He then encounters danger in the form of the Tusken Raiders. While Luke gets knocked unconscious, we, the viewers, become witness to his rescue by what Campbell refers to as the supernatural aid. This is our introduction to Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
starting with his distant force scream of a crate dragon and warming our hearts with the now famous, hello there. Then, and we're skipping ahead here, R2 fulfills his mission and plays his message for Obi-Wan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Alderaan? I'm not going to Alderaan. I'm going to get home. It's late. I'm in for as it is. I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. I can't get involved. I've got work to do. It's not that I like the Empire. I hate it, but there's nothing I can do about it right now. It's all such a long way from here. The real first step, the call to adventure, is Leia's message. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. While meant for Obi-Wan, this is really presented to Luke, which he refuses at first. Luke receives a supernatural aid from Obi-Wan, but then Luke ignores the initial offer to be taught in the ways of the Force and instead offers to drop Obi-Wan off at Anchorhead where he can catch a ride. You can get a transport there to Mos Eisley or wherever you're going. You must do what you feel is right, of course. That's the refusal of the call. And as fans, we know how this turns out. They discover the slaughtered Jawas, which led the Empire back to poor old Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru at the farm. And over their smoldering remains, Luke finally finds the resolve to answer this call to adventure. I'm going to come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. Just like the magical Glinda the Good Witch sets Dorothy off on the yellow brick road, Luke's supernatural helper, Obi-Wan Kenobi, brings him to the threshold of adventure, Moss Eisley's spaceport. You will never find more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Crossing the first threshold, and this involves a great concept in Campbell, which is the threshold guardian stuff. And there's a whole disquisition on that, but the threshold is um, getting out onto the adventure because there's stuff that's going to keep you in your parents' basement. There's a million things that do it. There's your own fears, of course, right? That's a big one. Um, you know, I think everybody my age has imposter syndrome. I don't know about you, John, but we all do, right? And it's like it keeps us from actually doing stuff. That, so it's like I'm still got, I apparently have work to do. Um, crossing the first threshold is them getting through the bar. In crossing this first threshold into adventure, Luke gets roughed up by those two guys at the bar. Then, supernatural aid, shump, one of them loses an arm. There they also meet Han Solo and Chewbacca, two more helpers on their journey. With their aid, Luke and Obi-Wan narrowly escape the stormtroopers in a firefight. They're well on their way now down the yellow brick road. See the comparison? Sure, they try for Alderaan, but it's blown to bits. That's one of the many obstacles on the path. This leads into the next step of Campbell's journey, the meeting with the goddess. While trying to get unstuck by the tractor beam, R2 finds Leia in the detention level. This step aligns with when Luke meets Leia for the first time. Remember how she was dressed in a white gown like a Grecian marble statue of Athena? I think I want to say that Leia shows up as the, the goddess initially, right? 
the hair alone should have given away something. But when he finds her and, you know, they open the door and stuff and, and she's laying there, you know, and she's draped, you know, like a Greek, a Grecian goddess. Yeah, she looks like a, some sort of uh, minor deity. What this really has to do with uh, psychologically is running into and getting yourself in proper relationship with the archetypes of mom and dad. And she's the closest thing to a mother he's going to have, right? Because she's his sister. So Lucas brings in Greek myth costuming here to illustrate Leia's role. Anyway, that rescue quickly flips to Leia rescuing Han, Chewie, and Luke. But then they all find themselves together in the next step of the hero's journey, the belly of the beast. Just like the biblical story of Jonah and the whale. You know, in the original belly of the whale thing, and, and that's Jonah, of course. Uh, it was a fish, by the way, in the Bible. Or Pinocchio but it was a whale. Uh, in our case, it's the trash compactor in the uh, in the Death Star. The tummy of the Death Star, I guess, would be the trash compactor. But I actually have Campbell on paper saying it's the trash compactor, so I'm going to believe him. Joseph Campbell writes, The idea that the passage of the magical threshold is a transit into a sphere of rebirth is symbolized in the worldwide womb image of the belly of the whale. The hero, instead of conquering or conciliating the power of the threshold, is swallowed into the unknown and would appear to have died. Luke is pulled under by the compactor beast, and the water goes still. He appears to have been killed, but is released and reemerges. Then, the walls start to close in on Han, Chewie, Luke, and Leia, putting them all in peril. Close to certain death, R2 stops the walls, and George Lucas has 3PO signal the group's appearance of death here. Ah, what? Ah, hey, Listen to them. They're dying, R2. Curse my metal body. I wasn't fast enough. It's all my fault. My poor master. We're all right. These scenes of the belly of the beast resonate with us because it symbolizes a low point that most of us have gone through or will go through in our lives. This is the teachable moment. It's always darkest before the dawn. A seeming end, an impossible trap, an unimagined loss or defeat. But we emerge. Like us, most of the famous names in history have found themselves at one point in the belly of the beast. Trapped. The road of trials is the whole process, and you always end up in the belly of the whale, finally. I got to be in the Vatican uh, Museum years ago with a little society I work with, the International Society for Religion, Nature, and Culture. They're really a cool bunch. We did a conference with the Vatican Museum, and so I got to be, I got to be in the Sistine Chapel alone. It was nuts. Anyway, so, but, but I had never noticed this, that the, the character Michelangelo painted over the altar. So he did the big plat, you know, before, you know, behind the altar on the ceiling at the top where you would think would be, you know, something important. Nope. It was Jonah and the whale. And I got to thinking about this later. And it was like, that was his way of saying F you to Sextus the sixth, because Michelangelo had a very successful career when this whale swallowed him and spit him up on the ceiling of the, of the Sistine Chapel and said, sorry, son, you're going to paint this thing. So the Sistine Chapel itself was the whale that he was trapped in. I think so. And wow. he made the joke by putting, and it's like, and I thought, what the, what the hell is Jonah doing over the main altar? I mean, that would, you would think it would be Jesus or, you know, nope, Jonah and the whale. 
Michelangelo found himself in the belly of the whale in his life. And the only thing he could do was paint himself out of it. And it took him five years to do it. Want some other examples? Reverend Brown from the movie Coming to America is going to help us out here. And I want you to hold on to God's unchanging hand because he helped Joshua fight the battle of Jericho. Yes. He helped Daniel get out the lion's den. He helped Gilligan get off the island. Lord. But what happens after Gilligan gets off the island? More after the break. back. Our crew, having survived the belly of the beast through their own wiles, or simply put, shutting down all the trash compactors on the detention level, are reborn from the belly, or the womb of the Death Star, emboldened by their survival. All four are now our heroes. It's after this that Luke and Leia courageously swing over the bottomless canyon and Han and Chewie charge after the platoon of stormtroopers. They've all taken on a new level of fearlessness and they're back on the path. Once you get in the belly, man, you are, you are launched. If we get rid of the gender stuff, it's really stripping away all of the social constructions about who you're supposed to be so that you can figure out who you actually are. And uh, Campbell walks through these in ways that were appropriate to what we understood about mythology in 1948 and the history past of that. When we try to apply these to ourselves now, we have to degender these because our, our world has changed. And it's a famous bit of Campbell that... When the world changes, the mythologies have to change too. In the book, the chapter titled Myth and Society, Campbell writes, For when scrutinized in terms of not what it is, but of how it functions, of how it has served mankind in the past, of how it may serve today, mythology shows itself to be as amenable as life itself to the obsessions and requirements of the individual, the race, the age. So, We would add to this gender, too. Mythologies are supposed to keep going and are supposed to change and adjust for every age. Next in the journey should be the meeting with the goddess, according to Campbell. But George Lucas already moved that up for modern audiences in 1977. He changed the mythologies, and the goddess became one of the heroes in our story. So the goddess shows up in the the feminine, and the idea, though, is like uh, under the older structures of mythology, this is where you recognize your gender preference. And, you know, you're sort of completed by this relationship you have that's both deeply sexual, but also deeply spiritual. And if I say it like that, by the way, do you see that you can just weed the gender out? Because you're not talking about a male or a female at this point. No, it could be any, you know, any, whoever you happen to be. And you can watch the female goddesses over time be transited into uh, masculine deities. We have to... retool this stuff, right? We have to retool our mythologies to accommodate the new worlds that we live in.
This is where Star Wars speeds up its run around the hero's journey in the technical sense. Obi-Wan, our hero's helper, shuts down the tractor beam and the team runs to the Millennium Falcon, but not before Obi-Wan accomplishes his goal of becoming one with the Force to truly become a mystical aid on Luke's journey. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Our heroes return to the Rebel base with the secret plans, which is the boon they must come back with. Along with these plans and a ghost assist from Obi-Wan Kenobi, they blow up the Death Star. But while they're getting medals, not so fast, Chewie, Darth Vader gets away, right? According to Joseph Campbell, our heroes haven't truly been transformed yet. This is where we get to The Empire Strikes Back. The first part of the hero's journey deals with the adventure of the hero. There's a lot of spills and chills, but the hero remains somewhat the same until he or she goes through part two of the journey, called initiation. And now you have these initiations. We started thinking about, well, what's the actual psychological structures that are being undone, regardless of gender, as you get to this stage of the initiation process? And uh, we boiled it down to uh, getting over mom and dad. The whole part of the initiatory process in the hero's journey is climbing out of who you were told you were. And there's some very interesting psychological processes that happen when you do this. Who you were told you were. For the road of trials, Campbell writes, once having traversed the threshold, the hero must survive a succession of trials. This is a favorite phase of the myth adventure. The hero is covertly aided by the advice, amulet, and secret agents of the supernatural helper whom he met before his entrance into this region. Or it may be that here he discovers for the first time that there is a benign power everywhere supporting him and his superhuman passage. That's from Campbell. Okay, we know that benign power everywhere supporting him in Star Wars means the Force. And in the second movie here, Near Death Again, on Hoth, after surviving yet another trial in the cave of the Snow Beast, he is directed by the ghost of his supernatural helper, Obi-Wan here again, to seek out Yoda and learn the ways of the Force. We'll go to the Dagobah system. Dagobah system. There you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. Man. Lucas uses supernatural aid once more to send Luke to his training montage, which Campbell says is crucial to the myth adventure. He tries and fails, gets better, tries and fails, rises and falls. Remember when we were just out of our teens? full of bluster and energy, but in need of experience and guidance? We needed that one teacher or director or coach or mentor who makes an everlasting mark on us. That's the lesson here. Luke is supposed to be about 22 years old when the Empire Strikes Back, full of confidence but lacking wisdom. He's a kid. He's training to become a better version of himself, to find his true self. But in order to do this... You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Lucas is using the character of a 900-year-old green alien 
to literally represent ancient wisdom for us on the screen. He's saying to us, listen to what this guy is saying. It's the truth about yourself. Yoda is teaching Luke to use the force that's everywhere supporting him, to help him, to be himself, where there is no trying. Luke is either himself or he isn't. But without this understanding, he fails. Luke is also dealing with his ego here, which, in this case, becomes bruised by his inability to accomplish his training. Ego, according to the American Psychological Association, is the component of the personality that deals with the external world and its practical demands. More specifically, the ego enables us to perceive, reason, solve problems, and test reality. As we get older, most people learn to control their ego. Most people. And not let it get the best of them. And when Yoda shows Luke what knowing himself looks like by pulling the X-Wing out of the swamp, Luke says, I don't believe it. That is why you fail. Luke is still unable to unlearn what he knows or even what he sees with his eyes. For John and myself, we had an amazing teacher in high school that spent our entire senior year teaching us about ourselves through literature. One of the highlights that we both still treasure was Ralph Waldo Emerson's seminal essay, Self-Reliance. In it, Emerson wrote, we must, quote, trust thyself, unquote. Back on Dagobah, Luke is unable to. He doesn't believe in himself yet. He doesn't fully know himself, and this is why Yoda feels that he isn't ready to face Darth Vader. He needs more training, but off Luke goes for his next set of deathly trials in Cloud City. Here's where we get to what George Lucas was referring to at the top of the episode when he spoke of the relationship with our parents. The next phase of the hero's journey is called atonement with the father. Atonement, or spelled out at one meant, requires, as Campbell writes, quote, an abandonment of the attachment to ego itself. And that is what is difficult. One must have faith that the father is merciful and then a reliance on that mercy, unquote. Here is where George Lucas minds the hero's journey for that most quotable line. No, I am your father. Remember that vision in the cave of Dagobah? That literally told Luke he would become Vader if he pursued hate and vengeance. But Luke denies who he is, and this leads to his downfall. No, it's not true. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. No! Yep, he's denying who he is. How many of us have done this in our lives? And Yoda saw this coming. Check out what Joseph Campbell writes next and see what further scene this conjures up for you from the movie. It is in this ordeal that the hero may derive hope an assurance from the helpful female figure by whose magic and power of intercession he is protected through all of the frightening experiences of the father's ego-shattering initiation. For if it is impossible to trust the terrifying father face, then one's faith must be centered elsewhere. And with that reliance for support, one endures the crisis. This can conjure up images of Luke dangling from the antenna at the bottom of Cloud City, 
his right hand removed, his sense of self shattered, and Ben doesn't answer him when he calls out for help. Remember earlier, Professor Peterson said that Leia is going to be the closest thing to a mother that Luke has. Luke calls out for Leia through the Force, and she turns the Falcon around to save his life. When the hero quest has been accomplished, the hero must still return with his or her life-transmuting trophy. The full round, the norm of the monomyth, requires that the hero should now begin the labor of bringing the runes of wisdom, the golden fleece, or his sleeping princess back into the kingdom of humanity, where the boon may contribute greatly to the renewing of the community, the nation, the planet, or the 10,000 worlds. Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Part 3, entitled Return. And now we've come to Lucas's part three, the return of the Jedi. Lucas has Luke still going through some tests and trials, but we get the sense now that he knows himself, that he trusts himself to save his friends from Jabba's clutches, and he succeeds. He's older, about 25, further along the path, and now a Jedi Knight. Jedi Knight? I'm out of it. For a little while, everybody gets delusions of grandeur. He confirms with Leia that she is his sister, and they talk acceptingly about their mother. They're speaking in a mature fashion about their lineage, their parents. And when Luke surrenders his lightsaber and himself to Vader on Endor, this is where Luke finally has that faith that his father is merciful, as Campbell wrote. So, you have accepted the truth. I've accepted the truth that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father. This version of Luke doesn't sound like he has any doubts about who he is or why he's confronting his father. At this moment, Luke achieves at one meant with his father. But listen to what Vader says next. That name no longer has any meaning for me. I don't know about you, but with this angry reply, it's revealed that Vader himself is in denial about who he is. He's stuck somewhere on his own hero's journey himself, but he has not completed it. One of the things that shows up too when you, when you dig through this is, is there's people who fail at different stages of the journey. And one of the things that we do in class a lot that's really fun is that in a lot of ways, uh, the villains that we find in mythology are people who fell off at different stages, right? They make it almost all the way and then it's like, oops, can't do that one. It is the name of your true self you've only forgotten. I know there is good in you. The Emperor hasn't driven it from you fully. That was why you couldn't destroy me. That's why you won't bring me to your Emperor now. Vader remains quiet and takes these words from his son. This is my opinion, but I feel that the writing in this scene doesn't really get enough credit for how truly powerful and instructive it is. When we grow up, we can then speak to our parents as equals when we've earned our place and discovered who we truly are. There's a valuable life lesson here from Campbell and from George Lucas in this sci-fi adventure movie. 
fulfill your destiny and take your father's place at my side. Never. I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed, Your Highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. So be it, Jedi. If you will not be turned, you will be destroyed. Yeah. Ooh. Only now, at the end, do you understand? Apotheosis. There's a moment when you realize that you really are on the path and you really have a mission you have to complete. And at that point, you really can't turn back. You have to go through to the end and see if you make it. It's like, okay, I'm really, I'm on the freaking path now. And you can't do that till you're kind of over mom and dad, actually. He sees himself and his father, right? And of course, at the end of the first, our original three, there's that moment where he looks at his own hand, right? And he realizes he's becoming a mechanical being the way his dad was. And then it's like, that's the moment when he finally becomes a Jedi. And in the hero's journey, he's got the grail now. He's made it. What would be the grail that Luke brings back? Uh, it's being a Jedi. So being a Jedi is the grail that he brings back to the village? The grail is, at the end of the day, the grail is your authentic self, because that's the thing we're all looking for. In this next step, apotheosis, Luke confronts the Emperor with some difficulty, fights with his father, but emerges victorious. When Luke becomes his authentic self in the Emperor's throne room, when he throws down his lightsaber and chooses not to fight, he finally becomes a Jedi. He achieves who he was meant to be. This moment is the holy grail of Luke's quest. Here is Professor Peterson. And th this gets really interesting and weird when you say this shit out loud, right? But it, this is really true that, that when you become your authentic self, that is the holy grail. That's what we're all really looking for. But there's a but, right? And the but is, well, what do you do now? So, and in Campbell's words, you have to return with the boon, B-O-O-N. It actually means to petition. It's a petition to the ultimate. The trick is you can't just keep it. You have to bring it back. And then here's the rest. And save the world. And save the world. Then he becomes the redeemer. That's right. And that's your, that's, that, uh, you're not a hero until you bring it back. Okay. So in the end... You atone with your father, conquer the evil empire, watch your father redeem himself by throwing the emperor down a shaft and killing him. You finally become a Jedi like your father before you and bring this boon back to your friends, your village. So the galaxy is saved. Fireworks, celebration, Ewok party, job well done. It's... It's Miller time, right? Here's the other weird thing I, I figured out, and, and Campbell doesn't talk about this, but, but somebody needs to. Uh, all of the world's mythology, uh, essentially, seems to me anyway, is about how you get from uh, Luke to Obi-Wan, right? Nobody talks about how you get from Obi-Wan to Yoda. That's the really interesting thing to me. And I suspect we saw it at the very end where uh, the very end of number three, the closing scenes at the end of episode three, Revenge of the Sith, where Yoda is talking to 
a young Obi-Wan, right? And he says, exercises I will give you, right? And so I'll just tell you what I think it is. What I think it is, is there's a point at which all of the stuff you've done in your life that helped you get from Luke up to Obi-Wan, you just have to keep doing that now. And if you do it long enough and seriously enough, you do end up getting to be Yoda eventually. Obi-Wan's not a master, he's a helper on the way. Yeah, he's a helper on the way, and he is a master in his own right. But there's there's a there's a layer where you get to be Obi-Wan, but now you're not done. You got to keep going. And because once you get to Yoda, that's Yoda's not the same as Obi-Wan. Yoda's level of enlightenment is a lot different. Luminous beings, Obi, not this crude matter. By luminous beings, Yoda is referring to enlightenment, which means having the light within or to wake up, or to recover one's consciousness. And that self that is illuminated is the deepest inner self. In the Buddhist and Hinduism tradition, enlightenment is represented by a many-petaled lotus flower with a glowing light within. In Camel's book, he quotes the Tibetan Buddhist prayer, which translates as, The jewel is in the lotus. Stick with me here for a second. The lotus represents illumination, purity, love, growth, and transformation. How do you say lotus in Tibetan? Padme, or Padme, as in the character from the prequel trilogy, Padme Amidala. Oh, and Amidala? It means beautiful flower in Italian. Her name means Lotus, beautiful flower. And what about the name Skywalker? Well, Skywalker itself, by the way, comes out of Hinduism for somebody who is on the path of enlightenment. The obvious uh, way to think about the jewel in the lotus, by the way, is Dagova. The place is a hole of slime and muck, right? So Dagova is the swamp out of which the enlightened lotus grows. Yeah, Luke Luke is Luke has his roots in the swampland, man, this horrible, lousy place. And there's Yoda's there the whole what in the hell is Yoda? You know, well, we know later why he was there. He was getting the hell away from everything. And by the way, the the whole his whole little discussion about the force, you know, it's in the trees, right? It's the rock, you know, it's it's it, you know, that's the, that's Taoism. That's what that is. Yeah, that's chi. This, uh, this sort of mystical fluid that flows through all things, this energy flow that goes through everything. There is a weird vibe you get if you've been doing Qigong long enough, long enough. When you do it out in nature, it's like you actually get this weird special effect where the trees sort of do talk to you in a weird way. It's really, it's, it's like, oh, again, I love the magic, but I'm almost sure it has to do with endorphin release. You know, there's a reason why people like going back into nature. And you get back out and you get back out in the woods, right? Or you get out on the water or you're on the beach or something, right? And there's just something about that experience that makes your whole body kind of go, you know, hum. Ever go for a run outside and be amazed by how much better you feel than inside on a treadmill? George Lucas was relaying the teachings of Buddhism and Taoism, even in his original trilogy. He was passing on this ancient knowledge to us hoping we'd learn from Yoda's teachings in these stories, or even pursue the path of enlightenment or skywalking ourselves.
one of the things that uh, John's been talking about is the Mandalorian is now moving the mythology forward a little bit. Professor Peterson is referring to John Booker of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. To where it's not just about an individual facing down the empire anymore. It's about, it's a little bit more, has a more collective feeling. Like there might be things we all have to do together now and not just as individuals. And maybe that's why The Mandalorian is resonating with us all right now, because we feel the need to come together. And be forgiven. I mean, if you think about it, right, there's a whole series about, you know, these little pieces. It's like there were those Mandalorians who took their masks off, right? Can they be forgiven? Yes, they can. And they can come back into the fold. And now we can face down what's left of the empire. So that everybody can worship in their own way, but still be part of the same group. I think that's right. I think that's what we're seeing. This is the way. And what about the Empire? They work as a group, just like the Mandalorians. My adopted grandmother actually made this point to me back in like 1977 or so when we, after we'd seen this. Uh, she said, you know, there's a downside in this movie. And I said, what? She goes, do you notice how clean all the Empire ships are? They're clean, they're spotless, they're well organized. And the rebels are all dirty and messy. She goes, People are going to find that attractive. I think she understood human nature. Do you know what I mean? It's like human nature likes order. Yeah, the cost of your individual liberty, I guess that would be one. I mean, uh, I thought Andor did a beautiful job on this, right? Because they, they sort of let you see the back rooms of the, uh, of the bureaucracy. <laughs> and it's like people like to be part of the machinery. You know, Pink Floyd is still holding up because of that brick in the wall mansion. But people want to be the brick in the wall. The trick is not losing the individuality in the group. And it's interesting in Star Wars, I, you know, one of the other easy ways to think about it is the more humane these kinds of political structures are, the more likely it is they're willing to endure the paradoxes of, of being about individuals and groups. Now that we've gone through this whole journey together, let's go back to what Professor Peterson said at the top of this episode. Mythology are the stories that we tell to put us into relationship to the world that we think we live in. So as the world has changed, and this is one of the points that Campbell made repeatedly, one of the problems that we have is that we have a mythology in our culture now that was, that was created for a world that hasn't existed for three or 4,000 years. And the danger, yes, mythology has to change. And Campbell actually thought maybe, you know, things have changed so fast now that there might not be a way to do it. But his view was actually that if we have one, if we have a new mythology, and well, you need to be in relationship to these facts. On the one hand, you have explanations, and that gives you the facts, but you need to be in relationship to them. Because if you're not in some sort of relationship to them, and at the dumbest level, if, you, if there's not some way you can take it personally, then you just then it's not meaningful to you. And it's only the facts that you can take personally that are meaningful to you. The hero's journey isn't just philosophy or a treatise on storytelling. It's a reflection of life itself and some of the psychology behind living it. It consolidated most of the ancient teachings into a single book so it could be easily understood by modern people. George Lucas then took that book and turned it into a series of fun movies in order to get these teachings back out there again to you, to me, to all the fans. And now we're getting updated mythologies through the Mandalorian series, the Andor series from John Favreau and Dave Filoni. And it continues to blossom from there, like a lotus. One of the reasons we love Star Wars is because it effortlessly passes down these truths to us through entertainment. 
We repeat the classic lines of wisdom from Obi-Wan and Yoda, and then our kids pick up those lines and say them back to us. We see ourselves as heroes on our own journeys, and it gives us the faith to keep going. It tells us that we will prevail, just like Luke did at the end of The Return of the Jedi, and like Din Djarin in The Mandalorian. I ended up speaking with Professor Mark Peterson for over two hours on two different occasions, and it flew by like minutes. I'll admit, when Keith and I started planning this, I wasn't sure I could do it. But then I spoke with Professor Peterson, and I felt emboldened. During our conversations, it felt at times as if he were there to answer my own questions about life, as well as about Star Wars and the hero's journey. Yeah, we even talked about sailing and drinking good bourbon. Reaching out to him for this quest, he became my teacher, my sage on the mountain, delivering the knowledge we needed in order to complete our training. And like all the other experts we've been talking to on this podcast, Professor Peterson is a master in his field. For this, he is our Yoda. Why Do We Love Star Wars is produced by Brain Kick Productions. This episode was written narrated and edited by myself, Keith Padine, and John Gestatis, who also composed the original music. Thank you to our guest, Professor Mark Peterson, for this episode. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd be honored if you left a review and a five-star rating, too. You can help support our podcast at Why Do We Love Star Wars on Patreon. Join us in the discussion on social media at Why Do We Love SW. You can now leave us a voice recording and find all our episode notes and information on our guests at whydowelovestarwars.com. Play it again, Sam. Nice. This is the way. This is the way.